Morning, church. The scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and also chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it's on pages 1 and 2. And as you turn there, just a reminder that the scriptures is not just God's word to us, but his very words and revelation to us. It is perfect truth, able to sustain us, never returns to him empty. Would you please rise now for this reading of God's holy and inerrant word, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, and 2, 5 through 7. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and there was a mist going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as a church this morning. We are a community, a people of the word, that we follow the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. We are people who obey the written word that is found in the scriptures. And as it's already been said, may your word, when it goes out, that it would not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you purposed this morning. And we ask these things, In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So something that you may not know about me is that I really enjoy writing instruments. Now, some of you may actually know that. I enjoy being able to write by hand on paper. Uh, There's something special to it, something about ink to paper, seeing it flow, the feel of it. And in my opinion, there's nothing that replicates that experience. I have different kinds of pens. I have gel roller pens. I have felt tip pens. I have ballpoint pens and even fountain pens as well. And each pen writes differently and produces different types of results. When I write in certain notebooks, I prefer to write with felt tip pens because the ink doesn't smear as easily. Or if I'm writing with a fountain pen, I prefer using thicker paper so it doesn't bleed. Now, because I have all these different types of pens, I tend to treat my pens differently. Uh, Some of my pens, like my fountain pens, require a little bit more maintenance, storage, a little bit more care. 
And then there are some pens that I just have and I throw into my bag and don't really care about them. If I lose them, if I give them away, I don't really mind them. So I treat my pens differently depending on their value. Now, I came across an article about pens that really piqued my interest. It caught my attention. Now, this article talked about a pen that many of you have probably used. Now, this is before the advent of using a stylus, giving your digital signature. But if you went into a DMV, a post office, or even a social security office to sign a form, then you probably have used this pen before. It is a black pen that's normally chained to a desk. Now, this pen comes in both the chained variety as well as the unchained variety. And this pen was, is and probably was a skill craft pen. Now, we treat this 60 cent pen with not much care. I mean, if we accidentally carry it home, we're not going to go back to the office to return it. If we find it stashed away in our stationary drawer to throw away pens or to clear out the old ones, it might be the first to go. But then there are some who treat this pen with a little bit more respect. Uh, because if you find out the story about this pen, you may value this pen differently. The Skillcraft pen was actually assembled by blind factory workers in Wisconsin and North Carolina. And these pens had to meet some very specific government specifications. It had to write continuously for a mile. It had to write in temperatures of 40 degrees below zero and 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And here's a description of the original design. It had to have a brass ink tube. The plastic barrel could not be shorter than four and five-eighths inches. The ball was 94% tungsten carbine and 6% cobalt. Now, you may be wondering, what's the big deal? But if you were a Navy pilot and you got lost, then you would whip out that schoolcraft pen to be able to navigate by map. If you, needed, if you were a medic and you needed to perform a trichotomy, or, then you would search your pocket, whip out that schoolcraft pen, and shove it into a person's throat so that they might live. Or, if you're a demolition person, you might whip out this pen to serve as a two-inch fuse. Now, while this skillcraft pen may have little value to us, in the hands of an expert, in the hands of a person who knew how to use it, this pen proved to be an asset. They would treat this pen well. And so one's treatment of a skillcraft pen reveals how much we value it. Now, this principle applies not only to pens and stationery, but it also applies to our treatment of people. Our treatment of people reveals how much we value them. Let's say your internet goes out for days, and you call your internet provider. And if your internet has been out for days, you probably have some curt words for whoever you're able to get on the phone line. And after all, you are a paying customer for high-speed internet access. And so when you get that customer representative on the line, she is the object of your internet wrath. Because, and you forget that the person on the other side of that line is just doing their job. They probably can't even turn your internet back on. But you want that internet back up running pronto. Or 
you may not value the opinion of a younger person. Maybe your child, your son and daughter is saying to you, you know, mom, dad, it might be a good time, it being a new year, to reconcile that relationship with auntie so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. But then you dismiss their advice because don't they know you're a leader at church? Don't they know that you sent them to college? Like, who is this young person to tell me what I ought to do? They do not have the same life experiences as I do, and their opinion is not valued. Or maybe at work, you need a designer to finish the revisions on a print so that you can send it off to a manufacturer, but the designer, the draftsman, is taking forever. Doesn't he know we have a deadline to meet? And instead of valuing them as a person, we begin seeing them as a tool. You call them asking, when is it going to be finished? You send them emails in a passive-aggressive way, trying to tell them, hurry up. They are a tool in your tool belt, in your pockets, to finish a project, and a faulty tool at that. Our treatment of people reveals how much we value them. And put another way, our mistreatment of people reveals how little we value them. But when we think about God, he treats people with such grace. I mean, he ensures that rain falls on both the wicked and the just. He gives wisdom to believers and non-believers to design technological breakthroughs, whether it be our smartphones or operating systems for our computers. He ensures that physical bodies of both the wicked and righteous continue to function. But why does God care about people? Why does God value them? Now, to answer this question, we're going to be looking into the book of Genesis. And this morning, we're going to continue this series in the book of Genesis titled, In the Beginning. Moses wrote this particular book to explain to Israel not only their history, but also their destiny. And last week, we talked about how God created the cosmos, the world, the creation. And this week, we're going to focus on the creation of man. And so we'll turn our attention to the passages that were read to us, Genesis chapter 1 and also Genesis chapter 2. So in these two passages, both Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time in our reflection. And from these verses we're going to see reasons why God values humanity. Moses will provide three explanations about why God cares about people. He'll provide three bases. Why is it that God values humanity? So let's talk first about that first reason. Okay, The first reason is this, that God values people because he created humanity with delight that he enjoyed making man, that when he created man, it brought him pleasure. It brought a smile to his face. That is something that was enjoyable, and he delighted in the creation of humanity. He delights in creating humanity. Now, we see that God enjoys, delighted in creating humanity because he draws our attention to their creation, that he has a 
focus specifically on the creation of man. And Moses writes the text in such a way that he wants the listener or the reader to slow down, to pause, when he gets to the part where God creates man. Now, he does this in several ways. The first way that he does this is the repeated use of the word create. Earlier in chapter 1, he uses the word create twice. He creates the heavens and the earth. The second time he uses it, he describes it to say he, God created the giant sea creatures and every living thing. But then in verse 27, in the creation of man, the word create is used three times. Uh, let's look at it. Verse 27. I'll read it to us. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. Did you count the number? Three times. It's as though God is saying, yeah, I created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, I created the living creatures, the animals. But wait until you see this. Now, God not only delights in creating human beings because of his repeated use of the word create, but he also calls for an audience to watch him create man. He calls the angelic host, the heavenly host, to watch him create human beings. Look at verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, some people think that us, here in verse 26, refers to the Trinity within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But I don't think that's what Moses had in mind. Now, yes, for us as believers with New Testament revelation, we can look back into Genesis chapter 1 and say, yeah, us is probably an indication of some Trinitarian explanation. But I think Moses intended the use of us to refer to the angelic host. And it's as though God is calling a press conference. All right, angels, gather around. Gather around. I have an announcement to make, and we are going to make man. And it seems as though he wants all of the angels to stop and watch. They would be able to see God make and form his masterpiece, humanity. Now, once God creates man, we also see that God focuses our attention to the creation of man because every time God creates, he kind of does an audit. He does an assessment. I mean, if you look at the other days, he does this. He creates the light, and he sees that it was good. He separates the land and the sea, and he sees that it was good. He creates the vegetation, and he sees that it's good. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he sees that it was good. But when he creates man as a final act of creation, he says in verse 31, it was very good. Again, it's as though God is saying through Moses, yeah, all creation is good, light is good, land is good, earth is good, animals, good. But you, humans, you, people, you make creation very good. 
Now, there's another last detail that helps us to see that God wants to draw our attention to man. Now, after this flyover of creation in Genesis chapter 1, Moses focused specifically on the creation of man in chapter 2. Now, some say that chapter 2 is a repeat of chapter 1, but I think chapter 2 is more of a zooming in on the details of the creation account. And on what does Moses focus our attention to? He focuses our attention on the creation of man. He focuses specifically on the distinction between man and animals. Let me read verse 7 to you. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Again, it seems as though God is drawing our attention to the creation of human beings because he delights in them. Now, in verse 7, I want to draw your attention to two words or two phrases. The first word is the word form. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Now, you may think, well, what's the big deal? Form. I think about a child taking some Play-Doh, forming a car, forming an animal. But the word form in the Old Testament context has more meaning to it. It is used oftentimes to describe how a potter forms pottery with great artistry. That the potter would put that lump of clay on a on a wheel, spin it, shape it, form it, so that it not only has function, but it also has beauty. Now, while animals might be beautiful, but there is nothing as beautiful as a human being that God has formed and crafted by his own hand. Now, the next thing I want to point out in verse 7 is this phrase, breath of life. Now, you may say, well, animals have the breath of life, but nowhere in Genesis does God say that he breathed life into animals. Moses depicts God as breathing life into human beings, that God imbues man with the breath of life differently than all of creation, that there is a uniqueness to human beings versus animals. Now, if God delights by drawing our attention, that he delights in creating man by focusing our attention there, then what should our response be? Well, we should treat people with delight. In other words, we ought to delight in people. We should enjoy them because it gives, ultimately, glory to God. It gives God credit for the person whom created. Now, before I describe what it might look for us, I want to give kind of a word of warning. Well, I guess a word of warning might be a little bit too strong. Maybe a better phrase is a word of consideration. The word of consideration I'm going to give is this, that the opposite of delight would be the idea of envy. That we may feel jealous toward others that God has created because they have certain gifts or abilities that we lack. But these are gifts and abilities and traits that we desire and want and lust after. Maybe this person gives, or maybe God gives this person the ability to be able to take apart an engine, put it back together, put it backwards and forwards. And someone might feel envious because every time there's car trouble, they have to take it into the shop rather than being able to repair it on their own. Or we might feel jealous when somebody is gifted with great intelligence that is evidenced by their entrance into Princeton. 
but you study hard, and it's difficult to even get into a top school here in Texas, much less an Ivy League school. And you may feel envious because someone has such writing ability that every time words are written, it comes out so beautifully. It's poetic. And you just have a difficult time cranking out an email to someone. Jealousy is not delight. Because envy and jealousy fail to appreciate how God designed a person. And it also leads to dissatisfaction of how God made you. Now let's go back to this idea of how we are to delight in people. Well, why? It's because delighting in people gives credit to God to, for creating, for forming, for shaping a person of value. Yes, you may not be able to break down a car engine and put it back together, but thank God you have the means to pay someone who has the mechanical skills to get your car back on the road. Yes, you may not be able to get into Princeton, but thank God that he has gifted people with an intelligence that they are able to think in ways that you simply can't. And yes, writing may be difficult for you, but thank God that there are people who are able to mobilize the English language to inspire, to encourage, to exhort. Because God created humanity with delight. He delights, he enjoys the fact that each person is created uniquely. And since God delights in every single person, Every single person has value, and we ought to delight in them as well. Now, let's move on to our second reason why God values people. God values people because he created humanity with a resemblance to him. That God used himself as a blueprint when he created people. He made people to reflect him that human beings share a likeness with God. He created humanity with a resemblance to himself. Now Moses uses a specific phrase to describe this resemblance. The phrase is the image of God. The Latin phrase for the image of God is imago Dei. God created man in his image, in the image of God. Now the concept image of God only occurs four times in the Old Testament, and it occurs three times in chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. And note also how it's emphasized. The first half of verse 27 is arranged in something called a chiasm. So when I say chiasm, you may be thinking, what is that? It comes from the letter key from Greek, at the form of an X, where the emphasis is on the center. Now, you may not know Greek, you may not know what a chiasm is, so when I say chiasm, I want you to think of a sandwich. A nice sandwich. Because a sandwich is identified by what is in the middle of the sandwich. You do not identify the sandwich by sourdough, bagel, no, no, no. You identify the sandwich by the roast beef that is in the sandwich. You identify the sandwich by the turkey that is in the middle of that sandwich, that BLT, tuna sandwich, because tuna is in the middle of the sandwich. So the question is, what is in the middle in this first half of verse 27? You have God created man 
And then you have in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. What is in the middle is image of God. So what does the term image of God mean? When Israel heard the word image, they would have thought, I know what an image is. It's an idol, a statue. And when we were in Egypt, we saw plenty of idols. Ra, Osiris, Iris, Horus. You name it, we saw it. And when they heard the full phrase, image of God, they would think, image of God? Yeah, I know who the image of God is. That's Pharaoh. That's a king. The king is made in the image of God. Because only kings would ever claim that descriptor of themselves, image of God. But Moses writes to correct their thinking. No, 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 no. The phrase image of God is not only used to describe kings and pharaohs, but it describes every single human being. The mason, the baker, the carpenter, the mom, the dad, the child. Every single human being would be described as being made in the image of God. But then what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What are the implications of that? It means that we share certain attributes with God. We call these attributes that we share with God communicable attributes. These are attributes that we are sharing with God that we have similar. So let me describe some of these communicable attributes to you. These are just a smattering, a small sample. But God exercises logic and reason. We also apply logic and reason. We do math. Two plus two is four. God uses language. We speak to each other using language. God plans. Whenever we take a vacation, we make a plan. Where are we going to go? When are we going to get there? What are we going to do when we get there? God has a sense of morality. We have a sense of morality. We have a sense of right and wrong. And people resemble God in those ways. Now, there is a caveat, though. God created man to be like him, not to be a clone of him. That we are not like God in every single way. There's a word that Moses uses to highlight this. It shows up in verse 26, and it's the word likeness. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Moses uses the word likeness to highlight that while we may resemble God, we are only like him. For those of you who don't know, Josephine and I are expecting a child in April. We're expecting a boy. And recently, we went in for an ultrasound. And in this ultrasound, the technician was able to produce a 3D image of our son. And when we looked at his face, we said, who does this face look like? Oh, his nose looks like your nose. Oh, his cheeks looks like your cheeks. But his face does not look exactly like mine or like Josephine. His face resembles us. They have, he has our likeness. So let's highlight some of these differences that God shows us from the text. Some of these differences between man and God. First, Man is made from dust. That's what chapter 2, verse 5 says. It says this. Chapter 2, verse 7, excuse me. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. 
that man, human beings, are formed and shaped by dust, but God is spirit. I mean, the earlier part in chapter 1 says that the Spirit of God was hovering above the face of the waters. But also note that human beings are gendered. There are men and there are women. That's what the latter half of verse 27 says. Male and female, he created them. But God has no gender. Now, there are not only differences that we see in the text, but there are also theological differences. That there are attributes that God has that we do not have. These are what we call incommunicable attributes. These are attributes that we do not share with God. And again, I'm just going to share a few. First, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. You and I, as much as we like, cannot be in two places at once. If I'm in Houston, Texas, I am not in San Francisco, California. We are not omnipresent. God is also omnipotent, meaning he has the power to do things that we cannot. He can create something out of nothing. And the last I checked, I cannot create something out of nothing. You and I cannot create something out of nothing. That is something only God can do. We are not omnipotent. God is also omniscient, meaning he knows all things. We do not know all things. If you don't believe me, ask a married couple. Do you know what I'm thinking at this very moment? Do you know what your neighbor is thinking at this very moment? You do not. We are not omniscient. And these are some of the ways that we are different from God. Now, again, although we are different from God, we do resemble him. And since we resemble God, we all have an intrinsic worth that people are valuable to God because they are made in his image. And therefore, we should value them as well. This means that we should treat every single person that we meet with respect, with graciousness, with gentleness, because they are made in the image of God. That we value the life of the old and of the young. That no matter what state of health they're in, whether they be sick or healthy, they all have value because they are made in the image of God. If a person is thinking in their right of mind, or even if they are mentally ill, their value in God's sight remains the same, that they are valuable in the sight of God. No matter their socioeconomic status, whether they be rich or poor, they are valuable because they are made in the image of God. And therefore, we should also value them. So let's move on to our last reason. The last reason why God values people. It's because he created humanity with a purpose. He has a task in mind for human beings. He has a role for people to fill. He has given them a responsibility. He has given humanity a purpose. He created humanity with this express task. So what is this purpose? What is this task? God created all of humanity to rule his creation, that he entrusted to human beings the task of caring for creation. Now, we see this expressed in the ESV with the word dominion. 
But in other translations, such as the NIV, NASB, or NET, they use the word rule. Both words carry the same connotation, that man oversees all of creation. And we see this in the latter half of verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, when we think about rule, we think about dominion, we think about a dictator. We think about an authoritarian. We think about a king who uses their power to get what he wants. But the word doesn't have the connotation of domineer or boss around. It carries this idea of benevolence, that you rule by making decisions that are best for those who are under you, for those that you oversee. Because the word rule typically describes the relationship between a master and a subordinate, that a master rules his servant, an administrator rules his employee, a king rules over his subjects, a superior over a, a subordinate, a master and a student. And they are to use this authority that they have in a compassionate, benevolent way. Now let me give you an example of what benevolent, compassionate rule oversight might look like. I'll use an example from Karate Kid. Or for those of you who are watching the Netflix series Cobra Kai. Now if you remember, there is a master, Mr. Miyagi. He has a student, Daniel-san. Now Mr. Miyagi has Daniel-san do a series of chores. Daniel must wash the car. Then he has to apply the wax in a circular motion and get the wax off in another circular motion. Known, wax on, wax off. Now, after Daniel finishes car cleaning duties, Mr. Miyagi then directs him, please sand the floor, sand the floor, right? Now, he sands the floor using circular motions, again. And then after he finishes that task, he has to paint the fence up and down. And lastly, he has to paint the house side to side. Now, after these house chores, Daniel, being a karate student, is a little bit upset because he has not learned a single bit of karate. But Mr. Miyagi, applying his wisdom and oversight of teaching karate, shows him that these basic chores have actually taught him basic techniques, yet to be verified, but basic techniques, and how to defend himself if he should ever be in a fight. That Mr. Miyagi directed Daniel to do these things that were beneficial to him, so he demonstrates this wise oversight and rule over his student. Now, the word dominion also has this idea of putting down opposition. Now, in this case, God has entrusted human beings with the responsibility of opposing anything that rebels against God's rule, that they are to put down any type of rebellion. They are to set aside anything that would make the earth unfruitful, that human beings have this responsibility of defending God's rule. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, we exercise rule in our lives when we reflect God's image when we do. That when we exercise wise oversight, wise rule, in a benevolent, gracious, and kind way, we reflect God. Now, God exercises his rule in Genesis chapter 1, and we see it when he creates order from chaos. The verse 2 of chapter 1 describes creation as formless and void, and yet God speaks and creates light. He separates land from water. He tells the earth, produce vegetation. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars to govern the day and the night. And all these things produce order. 
And then he creates human beings to be a reminder of his rule. Now, why does God do that? Why does God set up human beings as a representative of his rule? Well, in ancient times, in the ancient Near East, ancient kings would set up images and places to remind people who is in charge. For instance, Pharaoh would set up an image of himself in Canaan to remind everyone there, I am the boss. I am in charge. Everyone who lives in this area has to submit to my rule. And you pay tribute to me. Now, we see this even today. I remember walking into a social security office in college and remember seeing the picture of our president at that time in the social security office. It was President George W. Bush. He was the president at the time, and he exercised oversight on in all the federal programs, social security being one of them. And his image reminded me he is in charge. So God creates human beings to carry out a similar task, to remind creation of his rule, that where human beings live, this is where God rules. This is why later in verse 28, God commands human beings, be fruitful and to multiply. So human beings have value because they can exercise rule in areas of their life. Now, you may be wondering, well, what does that look like? Let me give you a few examples. Years ago, I took private clarinet lessons, and clarinet, as many musical instruments, can produce a series of sound. It can produce A, B, C, D, E, F, G, sharps, flats, different ranges. But a skilled musician, a skilled clarinetist, is able to play his clarinet in such a way that these sounds are able to make it sound like there is a bumblebee buzzing around. Or a skilled musician can order these sounds and these notes in such a way that it lifts a person's spirit. Let's talk about another area, maybe manufacturing. Think about the manufacturing process. You take this raw material, this block of aluminum, you cut it, you shape it, you weld it, you form it, and then it becomes the shape of a door to a car. You have brought order from this shape, so it's now useful. Or think about cooking. When you cook a meal, you exercise rule, you organize, you take flour, eggs, salt, mix it together, run it through the machine, you get pasta noodles. And then you cut up some tomatoes, you put in some garlic, you put it in a pot, you stew it, you combine it together, and you have spaghetti dinner. That these are ways that we exercise rule. And we can exercise rule in a whole bunch of areas, whether it be parenting, finances, spiritual disciplines, gardening, design, art. And when we do these things, we reflect God's image because we carry out the purpose of having dominion over all the earth by providing order. And when we see people doing this, when we see people bringing order in those areas, it reminds us that they are valuable. So again, why does God value people? Why does God care for them? Why does God love them? It's because of these three reasons that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. First, he creates humanity with the light. Second, he creates humanity with the resemblance to him. And lastly, we see that he created humanity with a purpose, that we should value people and treat them well because God values them. Now, let me close with a reflection 
on the value of people from C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read some sections from his essay, The Weight of Glory. I'm going to read them to us. It is a serious thing to live in a society of, in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. But it is, with, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, very latitat, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. So may the Lord help us to value people by treating them with love, charity, respect. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Indeed, humanity, people, bear your image because you created them and you created them in this way. And we confess there are often times when we fall short of treating people well, that we forget about the value that you have imbued and given them. And so we ask that as we go from this place that your spirit would help us, that when we rub shoulders with people either at work or at school or in our homes, that we are not just rubbing shoulders with people, but that we are rubbing shoulders with people who bear the image of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.